Hi, welcome to this week's campaign podcast. I am Gideon Spanier, Global Head of Media at Campaign. I'm with my colleague, contributing editor, Jeremy Lee, and two special guests. We've got Neil Bennett, who's Chief Executive of Maitland, part of Havas, and we're in the Havas King's Cross building. And I'm with Hamish Nicklin, who's Chief Revenue Officer for Guardian News and Media. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Uh, just to put put it in context, it's the day after England got knocked out of the World Cup against Croatia, but I came into the Havas building and Rihanna was playing, not quite at full blast, but quite loud in reception. The mood was quite good. Um, Hamish, how has this busy week been, uh, and even month for traffic? Because when I think of all things been happening, we've had the World Cup, we've had two cabinet ministers resigned over the Brexit deal, we've had uh, a increased takeover battle for Sky. Not sure how big this is for The Guardian. Martin Sorrell buying Media Monks, his first company with uh, S4 Capital. Uh, some Thai football team rescued from a cave. Uh, so how's it for, how's this big news week doing for traffic? I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those times you just love working for a news brand. Uh, you know, you, you look at it and you go, um, what more could you ask for? Uh, it reminds me of my first, actually my first ever week at the Guardian was the week that the UK voted to leave the European Union and all hell broke loose. It's similar sort of traffic levels. I mean, it's, 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 it's massive. And um, can you give us any sense of how many millions of daily users that can, equates to? I can. We're looking at, you know, um, over the last couple of days we've had between 45 and 50 million sort of page views, which typically we would get about 30. Mm. So huge increase. And that was, you know, that was even before the football. So that was a mixture of the other football team, um, the Thai football team stuck in the, in the cave, and the rescue attempts that went on there. That was hugely popular on our live blog all over the world. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the massive events in, in Westminster. Um, and so that's, you know, huge digital impact. But also we saw it, we were shifting more copies of the, of the paper, which, you know, everyone seems to forget about that we do still produce papers, but we d and we do shift significantly more um, after big news events like this, and we saw that happen too. So, Neil, um, you deal with a lot of on the financial side with a lot of companies. Has Brexit, two cabinet ministers resigning, is that the kind of thing that has uh, weighs on the mind of people? Because at the same time, if I'm seeing a, a takeover fight over Sky, a sort of prized UK-based asset, it doesn't seem necessarily like people are worried about Brexit. Um, we seem to be living almost in a in a twin universe at the moment. Uh, on the one side, all the chief executives I talk to, the clients I talk to are very worried about Brexit because it's a truism to say uh, that business hates uncertainty. Well, it's, it's, it, this is very uncertain. And they simply cannot plan for what is going to happen from next March onwards. But at the same time, the economy is chugging away quite nicely. Most businesses are doing quite well. Um, the, um, you, you look at the trading statements coming out this summer from, from most of the large companies and it's okay. Part of that is because a lot of British companies are international so they're, they're, they're reflecting pretty decent global economic trends uh, and part of that is that the, the UK economy seems to be st still rolling, rolling on regardless of this vitriolic um, debate over Britain's future role in Europe. Do you think that um, the uncertainty is less now that they've got rid of Boris Johnson, David S, and that Theresa May has sort of given a direction of travel that was perhaps absent previously? Another white paper's out. Do you, does business 
I know things are very woolly and vague, but is, is, is it broadly more positive or no different? Yes and no. I think on one level, and I'm, I'm one of the few optimists, that actually I think the deal that the Cabinet's now put forward looks quite sensible. You know, and it looks the basis for a working agreement and the noises coming out of Europe, particularly Germany, suggest that it's going to form the basis of know, some deal on physical goods with the EU. But physical goods are only a small part of it, and we can't forget the fact that we run a huge trade deficit of physical goods. So it's in the EU's interests to make that trade as friction-free as possible, so we can all go around buying German cars, for example. The huge piece that Britain is interested in is services. And we haven't even started there. And in many ways, that's much more difficult because it's much harder to tax and put duties on you know, an, an invisible service. I mean, 40% of, of my firm, maintenance revenue, is from overseas, overseas clients, and a large part of that is Europe. What does this mean for us? I, I simply have no clue. Yeah, it's a really important point for, obviously, everyone in creative industries. Uh, Hamish, briefly, does you mentioned having joined The Guardian just over two years ago. Has... Uh, you, have you noticed much impact on the ad market because it has seemed relatively stable consider and there may be bigger forces driving the ad market than doubts about Brexit? I think when you look at the macro factors of the, um, the ad market, from the Group M forecast to the Zenf forecast, they still suggest growth. In fact, they've upweighted them you know, in the latest efforts. The, the challenge, of course, is coming from a, from a news brand's perspective. Our revenues have always been massively volatile from an advertising perspective because of the structural changes that we're facing. Mm. Um, but what I would say is that actually what we've seen over the last 12 months, if not further, for us is that our, our media, our traditional display businesses have been broadly flat. So we've been able to offset our print decline by you know, huge digital growth. So we're, you know, we, which we feel is quite a good position to be in uh, and demonstrates that there's still money out there in the market. I mean, clearly, if I look very recently, and this really does talk to the volatility that we see, if I look very recently over the last three to four weeks, um, or even a couple of months, you've had the impact of GDPR and the nervousness that that's had on digital spend. Uh, and trying to unpick that from actual trends with fear and concerns about the economy is quite hard. So, you know, we've seen, still seen growth, but we've seen that slow down. And then in print, when it, it just in our total advertising revenue, it's one of those things that you see something like a major tournament, like a World Cup, going on. Uh, and the, the, the sort of uh, main overriding thought is, Actually, unless you're a sponsor, most advertisers either pull forward or pull back. And what we're hoping is they, they, they're pulling back because we certainly didn't see anything come forward. So it's hard to unpick all of these different trends from it. But I would say at a macro level, things seem to be going okay. But within the news brands, it's always volatile. Well, I want to mention one thing specifically about news brands uh, because it's relevant again for sort of the news of the last week or more. <coughs> Uh, we had the Newsworks Effectiveness Summit last week, which was a, a meeting of all the publishers and who effectively gets to talk to agencies and planners about how to use news brands better. Uh, there was some research which was interesting, talking about quality online environments being 42% more cost-effective, as was studied by Group M and Newsworks, uh, for ads. Uh, and also there was a interesting eye-catching initiative called Impact, where for the first time an advertiser can call one publisher and book the best print ad and homepage takeover of every national newspaper in one go. So that's 12 national newspapers, 24 regionals as well. And uh, this is collaboration 
which we haven't seen from news brands really before. The Guardian, Telegraph, Neil's old paper, and the Times are also uh, doing a digital ad display um, joint offering for the first time. So Hamish, is there in a sense, despite the relative stability that you're talking about in the last year or two, that collaboration is really quite important for you? I mean, the biggest enemies are Google and Facebook, surely. Well, I mean, you know, collaboration is important for us because the market's telling us and has been telling us for quite some time that, you know, we're fragmented, we're difficult to buy on our own. Um, you know, on our own, we're not big enough to compete with the likes of the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons. Um, and that, you know, we need to come together to tell a, a more coherent story. And we've been hearing that for some time, which is why it's no secret that we've been trying to find ways to collaborate. And so we're so thrilled that, you know, we launched the Verified Marketplace in November last year, which was our outstream video um, proposition with news and the Telegraph. And then, you know, we were able to move that forward into what we announced uh, in Cannes a couple of weeks ago with the Ozone Project. Um, so collaboration has to be something that we're looking at. Um, and it's been received so well. Mm. Like, it's quite interesting, with the Ozone Project, a couple of months before we went live, we said, look, I tell you what, why don't we write the headlines that we would love to be written about this? And broadly, we weren't disappointed, because the market um, and your good selves were very supportive and see it as a good thing. Um, and all the conversations I've had one-to-one -one with you know, different clients and agencies <coughs> say the same thing. It's like, firstly, they say about time, uh, and then they say, brilliant, tell us more because we really, really want to get behind this. Why has it taken so long to get to this stage? Because you're right, clients have been talking about it and demanding it at agencies for a long time. There's been so many full storms. This sounds like now you've you know, dipped the toe in the water with the front page thing. Is this the start of something bigger and why? Well, I think the big thing that we did was, I mean, okay, there's two parts to that. The first thing is I'll say is, you know, the, the impact product is one, um, but the really, really deep bit of collaboration is where we're setting up a new company with news and telegraph for our digital offerings um, and you know so that is that's a huge piece of work so you can imagine the reason it's taken so long is to get three very competing businesses who compete ferociously from an editorial perspective mm. and will always continue to do so to put that aside mm. to get round the table and say how can we you know um, uh, work together on a commercial perspective that you know meets all of the demands of the CMA you know, and of the market, that takes time. Because um, we've got competing business models, competing approaches, so, you know, we've iterated all of those things, and that really, you know, hopefully it, it, it takes time. I think, um, I think there's also a, a, a broader shift or a growing maturity in the whole digital space. But a few years ago, it was all about eyeballs and reach. And I think what advertisers are recognising is there are other elements, and you know the key element is authority, and so that's simple numeric counting. And I think the events, the fairly catastrophic events of last year, when it was suddenly discovered that you know when discovered in inverted commas that a, a, a lot of you know, a, a lot of eyeballs looking at ads weren't real eyeballs at all, has made people think genuine content has a value that far outweighs its number of unique users and, uh, and it has that so a, a guardian advertiser is gaining some you know reflected authority from being attached to you know be, being alongside that editorial which was always the case in the print world mm. and so that is now beginning to transfer mm. into the digital space oh, well, thank you very much for the for the pitch of the, the quality environments i mean i think um what, what's really interesting is that that has been 
talked about in the industry for about the last 12 to 18 months. And it was brought to the fore, obviously, with you know, front page news of the Times last year, and then Mark Pritchard, and all the well-known events. So people, you know, they talked about it. Uh, and one of the reasons that people then didn't translate that into a shift in behavior in terms of where the money went was because there was no proof. You know, it was all sort of theoretical. It was all sort of like, you know, uh, hypothetical stuff. Yeah. I think it's safe to say now that I can't move for proof. I brought, I mean, this is a podcast, so people can't see it, but I brought reams of paper, which on each piece of paper, there is a case study or some evidence, either by somebody who's got a vested interest, like a news brand or Newsworks, or completely independent third parties, like Thinkworks, who just time and time again now prove the efficacy and value that news brands and being in this premium quality brand safe environment brings to advertisers. So what we're really pushing for now is you know, uh, taking that to the market and really hoping that people can choose to listen. Mm. Right? Because it's not that we haven't been saying this, it's about now choosing to listen because the, the, it feels like the environment is right for people to listen and act accordingly. Yeah, I think one of those big changing points was Vodafone, one of my clients, where last year they made it clear that instead of blacklisting the sites they didn't want to be on, they're whitelisting the sites where they wanted to appear. Yeah. And I think that was a real head turner. Yeah. Good. Well, let's um, pick up on the other uh, big story, at least for advertising people this week, Martin Sorrell, returning to the fray. He bought a company called Media Monks, a Dutch content production company. Uh, it's The price tag was undisclosed, but uh, it's said to be 300 million euros. And uh, they are active in about... Ten different countries, including the UK, US, Latin America, and Asia. Who so, knew? Well, who knew they were there? Well, I think it, it, the first thing, Jeremy uh, and Hamish, uh, had either of you come across Media Monks and know anything of their work? Personally, I'd never heard of them before last week, but that might reflect rather badly on me. Um, no, I don't know what they do. Um, I had not really heard of. You must look on the campaign website because there's a, that's we've just done that's a, where I read about just published a piece uh, this morning uh, about uh, the the two founders who one who's forty one who's one who's thirty nine. So they're quite young and they've built the business over seventeen years. They've I'm done sorry. they've done all right. But Hamish, you you've encountered yeah, a little I, bit. I came across them very briefly. I mean, when I was at Google, I ran our creative agency team, uh, and so you know I came across them. But my experiences of them were they were just a really fantastic, and I say just that's not fair. They were a fantastic digital production company, at least that's my perception of it. And of course, the amazing parties they used to put on in Cannes, and, and still do, but I, I'm no longer invited. But yeah, that's, cost, that's cost, not revenue, though, isn't it? There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Well, I'm going to come to Neil in a minute, because what was interesting about this deal, it's important to remember Sorrel left WPP under a bit of a cloud in April. Not his choice. There had been an investigation to his conduct. And he also had had a tough time in his last year at WPP and there was a, quite a lot of criticism over the business being quite siloed about uh, effectively having quite conventional ways of working where you've got brands wanting agency people in their own office on site and this idea that because WPP was quite siloed it didn't have one P&L. The language for the Media Monks acquisition even though actually there wasn't a lot of detail was and I spoke to Martin Sorrell and was uh, first of all, no earnout, all the money up front, but some of the pay out to the owners of Media Monks is in shares in the new Sorrel company, S4 Capital. Um, one P&L, and talking about agile, flexible working, and P 
picking up on a word Hamish used before, Sorrell said he's been listening to what clients want, which I think brackets, maybe I wasn't quite giving clients enough of what they wanted recently. So, uh, Neil, you um, uh, see lots of M&A transactions going on, and uh, I believe, because you're building uh, a network with AMO, which is your PR businesses around the world, you're talking possibly about acquisitions. So no earnout. Is this uh, the new future for agency acquisitions? I mean, I have to say, let's, let's take a step back. This Media Monk's acquisition is, as at the moment, a complete black box. All we know about it officially is a five-paragraph statement from a company called Derriston Capital, which has promised at the right ch- next stage it will change its name to S4. So it's not even S4 yet. To be clear, um, that's an existing small company, Derriston Capital, like a shell, where Sorrel got in touch with them and said, basically, can I reverse my business into yours or my, my shell idea? So we have no shareholder circular, no terms of the acquisition. We're assuming it involves a large equity issue, but you know, to, to sell the equity, you've got to find buyers. Uh, no detailed financials on media monks. Uh, we've got nothing. You know, behind the headlines, there is, you know, there is nothing to judge this acquisition on. Uh, in terms of the earnout, essentially they are taking paper, so that's their earnout because they, they, you know, they, they will be the asset uh, sitting in their spore. So, the, in, in many ways, they're you know, from a technical, they're reversing onto the stock market rather than this being an acquisition. But I think we really have to reserve judgment on this entire deal until we see the shareholder circular. Can I just add, I think it's really really interesting that another thing that's not been mentioned at all is any of their work, any of their creativity, what the benefit is for any of their prospective clients. It sounds at the moment like a rather vague financial deal that I, my heart set a flutter by it, to be honest. Well, to be fair to um, Media Monks, they are... Uh, they lay flames having been involved in 128 uh, Lions, that is awards at Cannes Lions over the years, and they do have quite an impressive client list. They've got 110 million euros in revenue, so clearly they are a business of some scale. Uh, definitely, the you know, where what Sorrel does with Media Bunks is something we're all going to watch carefully because there's not much Sorrel does which. Uh, doesn't get a lot of uh, uh, heat and attention. Also, it's fascinating yeah. what he does next. It's yeah. like, what does he, what does he buy next, and what's the? Are they going to integrate? How are they going to work together? It's like, what's the? Because you know, it, I think that would be really interesting is to see where S four actually, what is it going to be, and where is it going to go? It'll be the next acquisition, and, mm. and what he does with that in media books. I mean, the only thing I would say is, on the 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 very few numbers that we have, and none of them are official. Uh, apart from the revenue number, which was in the announcement, it looks like he's paying two and a half to three times revenues. Now, I am sure a lot of you know agency owners and media company owners would love to sell their businesses for two and a half to three times revenue. I think that must be you know. What would you typically look true. at? One and a half. Well, they normally judge on earnings and cash flow, yeah. rather than revenue. Well, I think revenue. the earnings. Uh, yeah, some people say they've been making a profit of about twenty plus million euros. So that's still fifteen. Profit multiple of fifteen times, 15, which is a lot. Fifteen pre-tax, so it's it's he's paying a big number. Um, one, so we'll wait to see yeah. That. Well, one last thing, he he clearly is doing a lot of this uh, from scratch at a, an early stage because he wasn't expecting to leave WPP. He's identified data, content, and technology as the sweet spot 
And so as a final question, really, when we, we hear a lot of people talking about content and working with brands, you've got The Guardian working with brands on content, you've got uh, Havas, the parent of uh, Maitland, and the ultimate parent, Vivendi, which also owns Universal Music and so on. You've all, you're all in the content space. You've got a production company like Media Monks. Then you mentioned Vodafone. Now Vodafone and Unilever, they're talking about doing, making some of their content in-house now. So where does this all play out? It's, it feels like it's a content war, or maybe just overload. Can you, can, can, well, can, you know, I mean, if he says the key areas are content, technology, I mean, you know, these are the areas everyone is, you're mm. right, everyone's thundering into. This is not a revelatory, mm. you know, statement by, by Cervantes. Um, so he's going to be looking at the same businesses that all the big agencies are looking at, and to win them, he's going to have to tell them a very attractive story and pay a big price. And uh, on that point about everyone is looking at this fusion of content and technology, Hamish, how do you differentiate whether you're the Guardian or someone else? What's, the, what's going to be the key to oh, success? It's quality. Quality. I mean, at, look, at the end of the day, there's so much content out there that is rubbish. Uh, and it's, well, why bother doing it? At the end of the day, you're competing against the box sets that you can get, you're competing against the latest things on Netflix and Amazon, competing against the World Cup, competing against everything. So the stuff that you create has to be good enough to choose for me to choose to watch that as opposed to anything else. And so the people who win are the people who can create genuinely engaging content that people want to watch. There's so much nonsense out there and rubbish that is made just to get you know uh, eyeballs that bounce within one or two seconds. Uh, and it's it's that that's going to die. That has to die. I like the dancing squirrels. Yeah, but that's fine. You're you're you're. I'm not saying that's bad content necessarily. You know what? Don't get into the dancing squirrels. If that's what you're in the mood for, well, it's the only thing that cheers me up there on my working day. There you go. Well, I want to say uh, hopefully that we can keep up the quality in all of our work. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, I want to say as a footnote. It's all men on this week's campaign podcast, but last week was all women, and I'm sure we'll be back to a great mix next week. But I want to say finally thank you to Jeremy, Hamish, and Neil. Thank you, thank you for having us. us.